Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holden Graber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello, could I please speak with James McBride? Speaking. James, what a pleasure to have you on the line. This is Paul Holdengraber calling you. How are you? How are you, Paul? I'm so, very good. I'm very good. so happy that you're part of the quarantine tapes. Where do I find you at the present moment? Uh, and at the present moment, I am uh, parked on at a, uh, on side of the road, um, uh, heading to. Uh, I'm trying to get a tent because um, for a memorial service on Sunday, so our church needs a couple of tents into the in short supply so i'm driving around to try to find one <laughs> so so am, am, am i james am i actually finding you in your car that would be correct sir yes sir and so you're you're trying to find a tent for for what did you say for a service well my one two of the parishion two of the parishioners in my church died within the last month or so oh, so God. we're having a memorial service on sunday and we have to have it outside, so we need a couple of tents because it's, um, you know, a lot of old people, and it's hot, and, you know, it's in the city, it's in Brooklyn, it's, uh, you know, so I can't find one uh, in Brooklyn, so I've been wandering around here in Jersey. I found uh, one, I borrowed one, and I, I'm, uh, there's another one at a, a, a store that's, you know, about an hour and change away from uh, from the church, so I'm headed there to get it but uh, i stopped so that we could have our quarantine conversation we, we are we are having you I'm, I'm sorry i'm keeping you from the tents while doing that these you, you said these were parishioners who died two of the founding members of my church right who were older died you know as a result of um well you know you don't ask in my church but you know they were old and they got sick and they died you know right at, you know they I can't say they died from the COVID because, you know, people don't talk like that in my church, but, you know, they didn't, they didn't die of cancer. I can tell you that, you know, so, you know, it's just, uh, it's part of the, it's part of where we are now in, in this world, you know, it's very difficult. Will you, will you be, um, what kind of a service will you be, be having for them? Will you be, Will you be also performing? Uh, it's a memorial service. You know, we'll, we'll play. I got some musicians together yeah. and some people from the yeah. church. And, uh, you know, we'll play uh, some songs and some people will, you know, give testimony and give, give witness to the life that these two women, um, uh, you know, led, which is, you know, a life of extraordinary kindness and, and goodness. So um, I've known person who both of them are um, just about all, actually all my life. And, right. um, and they were wonderful. They were wonderful people. Um, and, um, you know, we're sorry to lose them, but they were, they were old. One was 92 and the other who was, uh, was my mother's best friend was 105. So really? they've lived, you know, they've lived well, you know, they lived long and they lived well. And so, um, you know, we're happy that, you know, they're, I'm happy they're making their, 
I wish they hadn't died now. It's a little bit, you know, not good. But, you know, I'm happy that they're, they're rolling on. So we're going to have a celebration of life. It's not one of these, um, you know, death extravaganzas that you see in the black church, you know. <laughs> it's going to be more, you know, a little more upbeat. And we're having it for both of them together. I remember um, walking by your church so many times when I when I lived in Brooklyn. I remember actually uh, us coming in and trying to find you, but you were not there that day. And I also remember the incredible tribute, musical tribute you gave for Jonathan Demi. I mean, I will never remember, and I will never forget that. I always remember it as such an extraordinary moment. So a celebration again, in a way of an extraordinary life. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Jonathan's event was wonderful. I mean, it was that was uh that was um that was you know his, his his he that's what his wife wanted and that was you know was happy to be part of that and we had some really a lot of really good people were there that day it was quite you know it's quite it's quite an event it, yeah. you know Jonathan left us too soon but but he left what a what a wonderful legacy left he left behind incredible incredible and and uh what a, the, the tributes, you know, from so many famous people were all connected by the, to use the word you used, by the incredible kindness um, of Jonathan. Now, um, James, to, to, to shift slightly, uh, maybe more than slightly, just a few weeks ago you said the cops are just the tailpipe of the car. It's a car that should be the issue. Can you can you unpack that a little bit? What is the car, and how should we, in a sense, be fixing it? I think I made that statement with reference to the police. You did, and um, uh, you know the reference was the, the police put they have to put their tailpipe mouth on the tailpipe of the car and eat the exhaust fumes, and the car needs repair. Well, essentially, you know, we can't expect the, the police to to unpack or to undo, unwind, you know, four hundred years of, of American history, and most Americans don't even know who, you know, they don't know who Abraham Lincoln is, you know, so a lot of our problems, our social problems are rooted in, you know, our, our, our history and our, our ability to create mythology where there's, it should be just straight up and down facts. I mean, Jesse Jackson, for Jesse, I'm sorry, Jesse Jackson, <laughs> Jesse James, it's all right. uh, Jesse James and Jesse Jackson. Well, one of, you know, <laughs> okay. one is different from the other, but it's a long you know, day. It's some, a long day and we're, we're going through, it's hard to keep things, <laughs> It's hard to to know what day of the week it is. No, no. I mean, the only reason I mention that is because I was talking about Jesse Jackson to a friend of mine who uh, was Aretha Franklin's conductor, and and he and Aretha Franklin were very good friends, and he talked about Jesse Jackson a lot. But what I was going to say was that Jesse James was a slaveholder, and um, and in in addition to that, he he and his men shot and killed an 11-year-old while they were in the middle of robbing a bank. Now, you know... uh, so that makes them child killers and slave owners. But they're also seen in, in, in this kind of a mythological sense as like these great American heroes of kind of Robin Hoods and so forth. And so when you create a mythology that allows uh, criminals and bank robbers to be mythic heroes, you can't expect your normal patrolman who's, you know, patrolling uh, Bloomington in Minnesota, I mean, you know, uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 
to be anything but a product of the environment that creates them. So we can't really blame. Look, I'm not saying cops should get away with murder. I'm not saying that, but I, you know. you know, there is a different system. There's a there's a there's a sy- systemic problem that needs to be addressed. That I'm happy to see that these young people are starting to to to, to unravel it. Some it, it's incredible to watch. It's it's very heartening. I never thought I'd see it. So that that in a way offers shards of hope. More than shards, really. Um, you know, a lot of these people in this Black Lives Matter movement are not black, but they understand that it doesn't matter. And that is, I mean, in my lifetime, I never thought I'd see that. I mean, I, look, I'm, these problems that existed now, these Confederate statues and all that business, most black people walk past, and myself included, walk past them and don't think twice. Right. They're just not relevant to us. You know, people hanging out Confederate flags just makes you, well, that's what they want to do. I'm just not going to have an accident with them. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to tailgate that guy. I'm not going to, you know, just, you know, stay clear. I mean, most of the time they're cool, but once in a while they're just, they're not. So that never bothered me that much. But, you know, the fact that people are, are dealing with this problem is a good thing for all of us. You know, sure, um, sure. Uh, what, what do you what do you think should be done with these statues? I know they're all different, uh, but the statues that you know, let's say of of people. Oh, you know, we we don't you mean like slave owners. Like, yeah, I mean, I I, um, I have a friend, my friend Patrick Strezik, who's a, a world famous sculptor. He wants to take the statues and melt, melt them down. And create new statues that you know, that you know exemplify the new America or a history that we all agree upon. I think that's a great idea. But I personally don't care what they do with them because I I'd rather the history of who these people are be correctly taught to taught. kids in schools right. so that we can really understand them so we can appreciate the difficulties that everybody during these this period faced. It's not going to help us, right? To go back and say you did wrong. It helps us to un- it helps us to understand why someone did wrong because most slave owners owners, you know, uh, or bonds, you know, keeper of bonds people saw themselves as good people. Um, and I, I'm, while I don't care, while someone else's self identification doesn't hurt me now today it's important that i see why they felt the way they felt before right and that's really important now as as fascism starts to creep not creep but walk into the american consciousness um right, right. and 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 you know the different kinds of reckoning one can have you know i i spoke with uh you you were mentioning your your friend the sculptor i i spoke with william kentridge in south africa and he had an idea uh, james which i thought was kind of interesting he said maybe we should take some of those statues off their pedestal well uh, sure i mean <laughs> however you however we can get to the mainland i i don't think personally i'm only interested in solutions mm. i'm not interested in the symbols that much i'm interested in solutions that allow us who are on this planet to to number one live a better life and number two live a life that allows us to or go to heaven or come back as a, as a, you know, as a, as a dove or as a, you know, as a shark or a whale, as opposed to, you know, creating and, and, and busying ourselves with, with symbols of an era that's gone past and, and with many things that many of us would just as soon forget. I don't really think it does, it does as much good. I think it's good, it's good to unpack some of this stuff right. and to examine it cleanly. Right. But then what we do with it now 
I'd rather spend the money on education and seeing that our kids, yeah. every, all kids get a, a good education and, and that, you know, that all young people have to service the country some sort of way and they have to work and that perform community service, you know, as a, an obligation. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see some ink and some airtime burned on that. Um, I think that's really, that's really important. And that some of these young people are doing it now, you know, by going into the street and, and protesting and, you know, making their voices heard. I was, I was really fascinated to learn that earlier this year, you mentioned in an interview that you were reading the diary of Mary Chestnut, the wife of a Confederate commander during, I think, the Civil War. You said there's much to be learned about her thoughts, even today. What, what, what do you think? That Absolutely, is, yeah. What, what is there to be learned? Well, Mary, <clears throat> Mary Chestnut, you know, despite her prejudice, was a, was a good person. And if you're a writer that wants to be good, you have to look beyond people's disabilities to to the good in those people. Otherwise, it's just, you know, you're not really, there's no journey. And without the journey, there is no book, there is no film, there is no story. Mary Chestnut was an interesting person because she lived at a time when women could not vote and women had very little to say. But she was a very observant historian of the culture and a very fine writer. And and she saw it was she saw what was coming, she saw it in the black servants in her house, and she wrote it. She said they are looking right over our heads. I mean, they're smiling and they're serving the coffee and all that stuff, but they are looking way over our heads. They see what's coming, and you know. So she's watching this revolution happen as a sole participant in a household that was full of people who were part of it, but who would not say anything about it, you know? I used to talk about this with Jonathan Demme. I used to say, you know, Jonathan, there's, there's black people when there's white people in the room, and then there's just black people. And I wonder if it's like that with white folks, too. <laughs> I always thought that was the funniest what, thing. What, do, you remember, so, do you remember what he said to that? No, he was just amused, and he, yeah. he, he agreed that, you know, that, um, that, you know, there is a dimension that we don't see. Right. Uh, and that our job is to get to it. Right. And so how do we get to it? You know, with trust and love and, and compassion. Uh, and this is a man who really understood compassion. Did he ever? Um, he really, he was just, you know, the he story was that... stunning. What were you going to say? I'm sorry. He was... That's all right. That's okay. No, he was stunning. He was a, he was he was as good as it come. I remember Edwige Dandekot at that service talking oh, about Jonathan. Yeah, she was. and what she said. You know, Edwige is, is one of the best writers in the game, and she said that a Haitian woman told her that she'd see this guy walking down the street with his daughter, and he was so nice, he'd stop and he'd chat with her, and then he'd walk his daughter to school, and she saw him every day, and she liked him so much, she prayed, she started praying to God that this white man would get a job, would find a job. <laughs> it was Jonathan Demi. I know, it's I know, it's fantastic, no, and I mean, Edwige, who was also on the quarantine tapes, is someone I, I, I deeply admire, and I remember you know, uh, speaking with Jonathan about the years my parents spent during the Second World War, there was a tiny Jewish community in Haiti, in Kenskov, and he immediately showed, you know, so much interest. I mean, Edwige, of course, I hope someday that I can make a trip to Haiti with her uh, and, and visit that, those five years my parents spent living there and see Haiti through her eyes and through theirs, they're, they're no longer no longer here one of the things i've i've loved so much james in in knowing you a little bit is is um 
the way in which you weave a story precisely together with music. You did some wonderful pro we did some wonderful programs together, both at the New York Public Library and then in Sun Valley. And you toured. I mean, it's hard to believe, but it's extraordinary. You toured with Jimmy Scott. What what was that experience like? And and what did you learn from him? And uh, generally speaking, from playing from playing jazz and writing novels and books. Well, Jimmy's band was um, Jimmy was Jimmy Scott was real good about uh, hiring young players in his band and mentoring them in the music. You know, he he was one of the cats who came up in the. 40s and he worked with you know he was a phenomena he was a phenomenal vocal vocalist and he was a phenomenal person and he was a great guy to work with i mean he um he was old school though you know he was very old school you know you 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 come on the set with jimmy you just you better be able to hit and that's it i mean he what one of the things i i, I remember one time we were playing in chicago and i just had this conversation a couple of days ago because the my one of my classmates, a guy I went to Oakland Conservatory with, and who I used to play with, and we played together at school quite a bit. He was one of my best friends at school. He was a sort of a he was an organ major, but he became a, he came out of gospel, and he ended up uh, conducting Aretha Franklin's. Uh, he was Aretha Franklin's conductor until she died. And I was just talking to him a couple of days ago, and I told him how I went to Chicago with Jimmy Scott, and how I was so scared because I had just gotten into the band, and we were going to Chicago, and you know. And um, and he said, I know, because I was there. I forgot that he'd come. But also in that audience when we were there was Minister Farrakhan. Wow. And I didn't know it was him. Somebody was sitting in the front, and every time we'd hit hard, you know, he'd say, oh, yeah, baby, go. <laughs> and he had a sweatsuit on. And, you know, I didn't know who it was until after he got up, and there were two guys with him, two big guys. And then that, the bass player said, you know, that was Minister Farrakhan. I said, you're kidding me. And he said, no, no, that was him sitting right up front. But anyway, uh, that I, I don't know what Jimmy's response to that was, but I remember asking him at that time because we had some downtime. We had to go somewhere together. For some reason, I had to go with him. We were in, in t downtown Chicago, and I said, "Who were your influences? Who were your major influences?" And he went when he he said Paul Robeson. But that just shocked me. If you if you know what Jimmy Scott sounds like, he sounds like a you know, he's like a, like a I, girl, I, you know. No, and, and the, the, the minute he opened his mouth, I mean, you couldn't believe the sound that came came. That's extraordinary. And how did he say more about that, or did you think more about that response? Well, yeah, he, he yeah, well, he he did. He he, he felt Paul Robeson was a, just technically a great vocalist, and he was. I mean, he was. You know, he was more of a classically oriented. Um, uh, I believe he was a baritone, but he 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 felt that he was technically so brilliant, and that he had so many different skills. That he, you know, he was an all star football player, and I know. Uh, I think he was an attorney. I mean, he was he was he was quite the man. Um, and so Jimmy Scott. It's funny because I talk to Sonny Rollins every couple of weeks. You know, the sax, the great saxophone Sha legend. Oh, you know, yeah. And Sonny is just a big fan of Paul Robeson as well. Talks about he talks about Paul Robeson with enormous um, enormous respect. So I, I learned a lot in, in Jimmy's band, and I, you know I, I was always grateful for that. Um, you know, being a musician has helped my writing a lot. You know, it's helped me in so many different ways. In what in what way would you say most of all? Well, I mean, uh, the business. It's just the business of understanding that you know the road before you is a there are paths to the side and if you know what you're doing you can walk into the woods as long as you have a general idea and the general skill if you're a hiker and you have the general skills to survive 
and not them walk the trees and, you know, carry a backpack and wear the little vest that hikers wear, whatever the hell they wear, you know, you know what to do. You can make it and you don't have to be afraid because you know how to, because there's not, not a roadmap, but you know the technical and spiritual things you know to get home. And that's what music, specifically jazz, teaches you, you know. And, and the really good jazz artists go down the road in a way that nobody else does. And that's what Jimmy did so well. I mean, he had a fantastic instrument, but his, his approach to singing, his approach to singing ballads was, affected me for the rest of my life. Because as a, as a young musician, I learned not to speed up and to enjoy and relish every single note, you know. When Jimmy Scott sang an E-flat, I mean, he really sang it. It was that note. It wasn't a million notes. You didn't go to a Jimmy Scott concert at 7 o'clock and three hours pass and you look at your watch and it's 7.15 because they're just going, don't try this at home. You know, no, you went there and you heard a love song and your life was changed. And so um, it's not, it's, it's not, so much what you do with story, but how you approach it and what you give your characters. And how, and, and, and the quality you bring to listening. Well, absolutely. You can't, you can't, I mean, you can't write or play without listening. You know, your job as a, as a, um, as a writer and as a musician is to listen to people. And if you can't listen to people, you can't recreate story. So you have to listen. Um, look, my job in Jimmy's band was to basically listen and then play eight bars of a beautiful solo and then get out the way and listen some more. Maybe once in a while pipe in, you know, a little response here and there, but mostly, mostly your job in that band, everyone's job was just to listen. You know, when he sang all the way, um, you know, that meant get out the way all the way. And it's like that for all the great ones. Frank, you know, Sinatra was the same. You know, when Frank Sinatra sang all the way, or uh, Nancy with a smiling face, whatever it was, you know, um, you got out the way. I mean, the great arrangers, the Frank Sinatra music, knew how to, they knew when to speak and when to be quiet. Nelson Riddle and, you know, Quincy Jones, they knew when to speak and when not to. And that's really the sign of an artist. You know, I... I um I feel that so much when you listen, for instance, to Art Pepper um, with the Miles Davis uh, uh, quartet, I think, or quintet. It's amazing to read the liner notes there. They they basically had not rehearsed, but they knew they 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 knew how to listen. They knew how to listen to each other. You know, I always remember my mother when I was very young, James, maybe eleven years old. She said, "You know, Paul, we have two ears and one mouth." <laughs> Well, there it is. <laughs> you can get by with one ear, but you can't get by with no mouth. That's so, right. Um, yeah, I mean that's 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 kind of uh, you know that's kind of that's kind of you know where one should live if you if you do this. You're serious about this? Um, you got to meet about once. what we do. You, you got to meet once. We were talking about Jimmy Scott. Um, who had such an influence as you just said, but you once got to meet a literary hero of yours, Kurt Vonnegut. I, I, I got to meet him oh, yeah, once yeah. very briefly, but what was it like? And, and do you remember what you talked about? Uh, well, we talked about Wagner and Louis Armstrong in his living room, you know, and we, we ate um, cheese sandwiches and, and drank whatever he was drinking and I don't drink but it was Kurt Vonnegut you know and so you just do whatever I mean he was one of the few people I met that I was just completely wowed by he was a wonderful person very kind gentle man and profoundly um, 
intelligent. He said when he was at the Iowa Writers Workshop, they invited Ralph Ellison to speak, and Ralph Ellison spoke about the Russian writers or something. <laughs> I mean, and, and they were expecting him to talk about black writers and black literature, and he didn't. And Kurt Vonnegut thought that was so funny. I mean, he was really a person who really, uh, he was, there are a few American treasures that there'll never be, that will never, will never come this way again. Donald Hall was another. I just finished reading his book. I never met him. He's a poet. Uh, the, the poet um, who wrote about old age. Yeah, yeah. I want to read. What that. a wonderful man. Oh, what a wonderful what, what, what book. What is a wonderful what, man. What is the book? Do you remember? It's called Life After 80 or right, Living, right. something, you know, it's, it's something, I, something like that. Yeah, I want to read that. How fun. So do you read a lot of poetry? No, not at all. I've read Richard Justice for a while. Um, but no, I don't read. I don't read that much poetry. Um, but that's it's just a function of not having enough time, always working on the next book. I know. And, you know, um, you know, I read a lot of history books. And I just happened to read Donald Hall's book because I was in the mood to read some um, uh, Jim Harrison, and I couldn't find any in my house. And someone gave me Donald Hall's book and said, "Well, you know, he's got the same same bloodline." You know, and he does. I mean, Jim Harrison, who wrote Brown Dog and many other stories, was a guy who just had so much. He had he wrote like a poet. Poets are interesting because when they do write, you know, if if they write nonfiction like Donald Hall, they really have an enormous enormous weaponry uh, in terms of their use of description and character and moving moving things around on the page. Um, they can just they can almost like listening to. Coltrane or Sonny Rollins, they can really improvise and they don't really, they never go back to play the same thing again. I mean, that, that's what makes Sonny Rollins special. He never played the same thing for all pure improviser. And the good writers like, like Jim Harrison and uh, Donald Hall are like that in, in, in the long form. They just seem to have this ability to lift off. I mean, Tony Morrison, of course, and others, but, um, you know, they just, they can just, they can just, they can go spatial on you. You know, you know, James, uh, a, a story, I don't know if I've ever told it to you. I had a friend who was writing a book about Miles Davis and Miles was going to play in New York, maybe at Carnegie Hall. I'm not sure it was sold out. So my friend called him up and said, you know, I really want to go to this concert with a friend of mine. Can you get us tickets? And Miles said, of course. So he got him two tickets and Miles said, is there anything else, Michael, that you would like? And he said, well, my friend loves my funny Valentine. And Miles said to him, tell your friend to buy the record. <laughs> Look, you do what you can. That's it. You know, I mean, uh, you can't ask. You know, Miles was a you know, deeply a man of extreme talent and, and deep conflicts, like like many of us. And um, you know, uh, our musicians are tasked with the with the public belief that because they love music, they can just turn it on and turn it off any time. I, mean, I wouldn't dream of asking an orthopedic surgeon, you know, a foot doctor to say, look at my foot, you know, while we're at the car dealership buying a car at the same time. So, um, you know, I mean, we live in a society that has so little respect and regard for music. And at a time when, you know, file sharing has destroyed the careers of so many really wonderful musicians. And that's another story entirely. It's another story that I hope to talk to you about at some point. James, it's been such a All pleasure right. to talk to you. 
Thank you so much. I hope it's good I, to catch up to Paul. It, it, we miss you in New York. Oh, well, come back home soon, I, son. I, 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 I will, <laughs> and come, come out to Los Angeles. You have a place to stay. It's really wonderful. To, to, it's really, really wonderful to talk to you, James. Take care of yourself. I hope you find a couple of tents this afternoon. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. Take care now. It's good talking to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.